by one day I, I was just walking by a neighborhood between the university and the place where we lived and and I just saw these two groups of young people approaching this football field and both groups armed. Um, you could see that they weren't the best friends. And then they got to this pitch and then left their weapons like at the entrance or at a place. And then if you hadn't seen the situation, but just arrived when they started to play, you would have said, hey, what a cool football match. Everybody communicating, everybody enjoying themselves. Just a normal football match where people feel, felt very comfortable just to, once it was done, to walk off again, take their weapons again and continue killing each other again. As a football fan since a boy, and a believer that sport and football has the power to create social impact. I'm so privileged to have the opportunity to interview this week's guest, Jürgen Griesbeck, founder of the game-changing organization Common Goal. And thank you, Ben Miller, for the connection. In part one, we cover Jürgen's early path to purpose. German-born, Jürgen's journey began in the Black Forest. Growing up in Stuttgart with a mother who worked as a lawyer's assistant and a football-playing hospital administrator father, Jürgen's childhood provided little evidence that a life of social impact lay ahead. Studying sports science, travels through Mexico and Costa Rica, developing a love of Latin America and meeting his now wife all contributed to him taking a scholarship in Medellin, Colombia, three months after the death of drug cartel leader Pablo Escobar. In that dangerous and unpredictable environment, Jürgen witnessed firsthand how football had the power to create unity when he saw two rival gangs set aside their weapons and participate in a football match. In this serendipitous moment, his idea for Football for Peace was born. Engaging the gang leaders, he designed a novel accessible approach to football match rules that helped the players develop conflict resolution skills, empathy, respect for women and collective responsibility. The transformative impact in the city led him to being invited to replicate the model and help address extremism in unified Germany, where he created street football for tolerance. He soon recognized the need and the opportunity to create a platform where resources and experiences could be shared. Forming Street Football World, it now has a presence in 135 countries, a network of social impact, community organizations using football as a mechanism to address social inequity for underserved youth. Jürgen ends part one discussing why the global and regional football organizations like FIFA and UEFA have not embraced social impact at the core of their work. And in part two, we dive deep into common goal and the incredible work Jürgen and his team are doing to inject social impact into the DNA of football. This episode is evidence that finding one's purpose is not a linear path. It takes time, trust and faith that circumstances and life events have a unique value in the process of discovering one's purpose in life. I hope you enjoy the wit, wisdom and social impact of Jürgen Griesbeck. Jürgen, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Mark. It's been a long time coming. We, we spoke to Ben Miller. Uh, in Barcelona last May, and he recommended that we should interview you next. So a year and one month later, here we are. So it's good. So uh, where are you at the moment? I'm actually also in Spain. I'm in the further south in Spain, in Andalusia. Oh, lovely. Uh, have you been there for the whole of the lockdown? Yeah, for the whole of the lockdown. Yeah, there was no way to, to getting away. Um, actually, also one of our daughters was here, and she initially came for a week and spent 12. <laughs> nice. Yeah, very nice. That was uh, one of the of the upsides of the lockdown. Well, good. Well, let's jump in. Before we get into your, your life in football, social impact, philanthropy, we'd like to understand a bit more about your background. I think you grew up in Germany and we'd like to understand a bit more about the impact of your parental support and guidance on the direction life, your values and their sense of worldview and where that came from. 
I think that's actually a difficult question. I was born in the in the Black Forest, um, like in a tiny in a tiny village, like uphill, but didn't stay for long. So my parents moved away from that place um, when I was age two, I think, and then we went to another place up north in Bochum, where we spent another three years, and then settled in in relatively close to Stuttgart for then the rest of my childhood and youth before I went off studying then from there. And so the place where I actually most relate to is, is that place close to Stuttgart. In terms of guidance, I'm not sure. It was like a very protected environment, not much edges, but not much inspiration either. So it was like a good value base. But even if you ask me what I, what I remember of my childhood, very little comes to mind. I don't remember that much. And sometimes I like to think that it, it, it has been because of that, like very protected, no, no big like sparks in either direction. And so it was, I don't want to call it boring, but sort of very mainstream, I would say. So and even until the age I started studies, I, I wasn't settled in life, I would say. I was well-oriented and had a common sense and values were all right, but I didn't have an ambition in life beyond the next steps or so. What did your parents do? My mother was, when I was born, she was an assistant at a, at a lawyer's place, but then she, she stopped working and, and never went back to work again during the whole time I grew up. So she worked at home. And my father, he was for a good while a football player, but in times when, when it wasn't a professional thing. So he, he played football, he earned some money of it. But then the deal was mainly like to the clubs where, where he went, they would offer him a job in addition. So he had a job and played football. And he worked actually in a, in a hospital and was administrator in a hospital. And obviously... When I, they had me when they were very young. So um, my parents were like 19 when I was born. And I don't think that it, that was the plan. And so they, I think they were just crashing into parenthood um, with me and took it from there. So when I was age 15, 16 or so, my father stopped playing, um, moved on to coaching and continued his job like as a, as a hospital administrator. And so there was some football in my early life, but I don't remember that much either. There was one thing I do remember that actually my father, he was, he was playing at a club where there was, based on an injury, there was some sort of, an, of a conflict in the club, which then translated down to me, to, to, to a nine-year-old, used to play and score a lot of goals. And then all of a sudden I found myself on the bench and not playing anymore. So that was the day I stopped playing football and, and went with a friend and started to play table tennis instead. <laughs> 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 so that's, that's probably in a nutshell. And what about siblings? Are you the only one? Oh. No, uh, yeah. yeah, sort of, because my sister was born like 16 years later. So when she turned three, I was leaving home so that we didn't, we didn't share a lot like of like, siblinghood so we didn't spend lots lots of time obviously when she was just recently born i was like in in this happy-go-lucky time of yeah youth so that, that we spent some time and there's bonding obviously but but we we didn't have like a what you would call a, a brother sister relationship so we had to to connect much further down the line when she was getting close to adulthood herself <laughs> 
We always ask our guests about, did they grow up in an environment of abundance or scarcity? Maybe I already, uh, no, I didn't answer that. Um, I wouldn't say neither nor. There was never like an issue of having food on the table or like real fear of something could go really wrong. But on the other side, there was never like the idea of, okay, whatever I'd like to have, I can have. So somewhere in between, I would say. Okay. And you were growing up in Germany. It was, uh, I suppose, a time of economics of uh, abundance for the country and great transformation and the unification of Germany. Did um, any of that affect your worldview and how you saw the world beyond Germany? I started to look beyond Germany when I, when I left home, actually. Like during the time I was living with my parents, we probably went twice or three times on vacations outside somewhere, like relatively close, being it Croatia or Italy or something like that. Very like this, these very normal mainstream holidays. And then once I, I finished school, it was like my first experience, like traveling. And, and that took me to Mexico and Guatemala for, for three months. And I think that that influenced me a lot. Um, it influenced actually my studies also because I went there without even thinking about the fact that I wouldn't be able to communicate with the people um, I would meet in, in, in Mexico and Guatemala. And then I, I felt really bad about it um, when, once I was there. So I, one consequence was that I not just studied sports, but also Roman languages in, in order to get that one fixed. And also like this, this sense of there was obviously no cell phone, no nothing. Um, like there was postcards and, and $4 a minute telephone conversations also. So there was actually, we were really like, I went with my girlfriend at the time and, and we were really gone like for three months. There was like no connection to anything beyond like the presence we were living there. Yeah, that made me feel, fell, uh, fall in love in, with Latin America. So that was a, a big influence. And then the, the time when, when actually Germany was, was reunified, I wasn't in Germany. I was on a year abroad during my studies, on a year abroad in Costa Rica. So I did two semesters in Costa Rica, 89 to 90. So I missed that one. I just saw it from abroad, both like the, the opening of the, of the borders and and Germany winning the World Cup, both I, I witnessed Costa Rica. <laughs> Not a bad place to be, Costa Rica, to watch, <laughs> watch that happen. Yeah. A very good year for you. <laughs> it was a good year, yeah. It always grates with me when someone says, yeah, I watched my country win the World Cup, but I'm Scottish. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I'll ever have the joy of saying that. Um, <laughs> yeah, we ha- we're having that joke with the uh, with Dutch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they've come pretty close though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was school like for, for the young Jürgen? Were you uh, studious? Again, I, th- I sort of like floating through school, I guess. Never really in danger of, of getting behind, but also not brilliant. Didn't invest too much either. Um, it was just part of this whole thing that there's not nothing special I would, I would recall from, from that time, like really special in terms of what different to what everybody else would have experienced in some shape or form in a similar way. Then studies, even, even studies, I, I wasn't that sure about what I would be studying at the time. So you, you already hear that like my, my coming to, um, 
to or my putting together my senses happened quite late in my life. But I went to study sports because of a, of a friend of mine who, who went and studied sports. And I just accompanied him to the admission test and said, okay, I'll do it too. And, and then I passed and, and started to study that. And then the travels to Mexico made me want to learn Spanish. So I, I chose Roman, lang- Roman languages uh, on a side. So I did a, like a, a two-strand studies, sports sciences. And it was actually two different universities in Cologne. But it was, it was very nice because I really laid back studies at the sports university. So everybody in, in sports clothes all the time, like there's sweating all the time and and like from one like doing sports and then going to to sports medicine class or to like these kind of things and and then university was like a a different environment so I enjoyed like moving between two these two worlds and there was a a forest in between so you could just bike back and forth it was really nice in that sense I enjoyed doing both at a time. So what, what led you to Medellin in the 1990s? That's um, still linked to my studies, actually. I started, at that time, we did study really for a long time. It probably took me seven years to finish or so. And so like, I think I, I finished in the 13th or 14th semester. Um, obviously, I was a year off in Costa Rica and, and I did two studies at a time. So it's not that bad, but it was really like a, a life cycle. You that one I do remember very well and, and it, it added a lot to my personality. And I think it, at that time it was just independent of what, what you studied. It was important that you studied like, and that you lived through that period where you had to, to earn your, your living and, and to start to organize yourself and, and, and get into like, like do this first step into, into professional life. So it, I, I think I started in 86 and finished in 93. And I actually wanted to continue and do a PhD and, and had already like my tutor and, and he took me in, in 92 already. He took me to a, to a series of, of speeches he had agreed to in Colombia. And I, as I had studied Spanish, I now had to translate his speeches. And I, I went and fell in love with my today wife being there and during one of those speeches. And that made me then want to live there like nearly two years later or so. Uh, but there was a, a chapter in between. I, there, I mean, obviously there was no money and nothing. And so I needed to, to get a scholarship. And there was only scholarship if there was a relationship between the universities. And so I needed to establish first a partnership between the universities in order to be able to apply for a scholarship to be able to go to Colombia. So that was like the chapter in between. But, but then I managed to go like in December 93, I moved to Medellin. And we started to, to, to be together, my wife and I. And, and that, that was actually like three weeks after Pablo Escobar was killed by the CIA. That, that like was the month December 93. I think it was first week of December when he was killed and I arrived like slightly after Christmas. So a fairly uh, unstable environment in the aftermath of that. It, it was tough times, yeah. I mean, Colombia and Medellin had gone through sort of different what, like waves of tough times before that. So the, the bombings were already over. Um, that was more in the 80s, maybe very early 90s. And with the killing of Pablo Escobar, it was like the, the end of the cartels, like the Cali and the, the Medellin cartel. And violence took a different shape, like in terms of it, it, it fragmented a lot. So there was no clear hierarchy anymore. 
and it went from rural to urban very much. So that was then the environment I needed to to understand and um, in order to be there and, f- and and be happy there, actually. And was it a conscious decision to focus on contemporary social problems? That was actually, that was then later. I, initially, I went um, with my scholarship doing the field studies for my PhD. So that was the plan. And this came together with the with a commitment to to offer some classes also to to pre-graduate in sports sociology. So I just started with that. So I was a guest professor at the university and 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 started to do my field studies and that was my life like university life but as a professor or a teacher. And it was not until the World Cup again, World Cup 94 happened and and Colombia had qualified for that World Cup in a in a very special way like there was this tough situation in in Colombia as a country, like really suffering. But then the, the last qualifying match to that World Cup, Colombia won 5-0 in Buenos Aires against Argentina, like in Argentina and 5-0. That was like, okay, we can win this World Cup if we, if we beat Argentina in their home turf, like 5-0. And that was not just like, an exaggeration of, of greatness or, or like a feeling of uh, we, we can reign the world. But, but it was actually the dream of the Colombians to, to stand out for something that was related to beauty and, and not to this darkness and, and, and like, like drugs and violence, etc. So there was a whole national dream carried on, on the shoulders of, of, of this national team to the World Cup in the U.S. And at the same time, there was this interference of people in power, like who who dominated and dictated the violence in Colombia at the time, who then abducted a child of one of the players, interfered in terms of which team needs to play because they wanted to sell these players after the World Cup, etc. So it was a very, like, it, it was impossible to play that World Cup for the Colombian team. So lost the first match, lost second match. And... Eliminated and Andres Escobar scored his own goal in, in the second match against the US and and this sort of symbolized this whole failure of the team and by the man who who was like the most like the gentleman of Colombian football so the the very good guy of, of them all and yeah eleven days later when against all the recommendations of not going back to Colombia staying for another while in, in the US or somewhere else, but not going back on the 2nd of July, he was killed. That event, and you were obviously in Colombia at the time with your then to soon-to-be wife. Yeah. How did that reverberate around the country and affect the, sort of the environment that you were living in and particularly the violence that was mm. occurring in these urban env- this, the urban environments? Yeah, between the gangs. Mm. Yeah, my wife. She was. She was. I mean, I mean, it, it was obviously a a horrible thing that that happened to Andres, and it was even like it. I think it struck us more because my wife. She was working at the club where he played at Atlético Nacional, so she she did like voluntary photography for the club, and this made us understand like a bit more maybe as average and I as a, as a total greenhorn in Colombia, like I just arrived, I didn't understand anything. So this allowed us to, to contextualize a little better and it allowed me. And it was on that 2nd of July that I, that I decided not, not to continue like with the 29 years of my life I, I had 
until then. So I went to the university and, and said, hey, I, I won't come back. I, I can't do this PhD and, and I don't want to teach anymore. And, and I, I handed back my scholarship and, and us expecting our first child and, and without any income, without any plan. So it was, it, it was quite, a, quite a moment. And, and it was just the two of us saying, hey, hey if, if you feel that, that you need to do something different and it, that you need to do something about it, then let's do it. But, but it was a tough decision. I mean, I had never had a child before and, and the responsibility that comes with it. And at the same time, like without being forced to take a decision that would leave you without like ground under, under your feet. Yeah, it was, it was a special moment. So what was the um, impetus to actually go from, from that position to creating your Football for Peace initiative? Yeah, there were t- two years in between, actually. Then, um, so I, I, once I took that decision, then, as I said, I, I was totally new to the country. So violence was for me sort of abstract. I, I knew that there were five thousand dead young people every year just in the city. So I knew that um, you could hear the shootings, like at night, sometimes during the day, sometimes closer, sometimes not that close. But it continued to be abstract, and I didn't understand. I mean. By the book, I did, but still, it was difficult for a for a European to to get a grip of that. And so, what I did is actually, um, I took another two years to to study both academically and and also speak. and And this made me speak to a lot of people, and and really, like over the the next two years, really get closer to understanding of how a solution actually could look like potentially. I wasn't focused on football at all. I was totally open. I just wanted to do something that would somehow create some sort of a legacy out of what had happened. And by one day, I I was just walking by a neighborhood between the university and the place where we lived. And and I just saw these two groups of young people approaching this football field and both groups armed. You could see that they weren't the best friends. And then they got to this pitch and then left their weapons like at the entrance or at a place. And then if you hadn't seen this, this situation, but just arrived when they started to play, you would have said, hey, what a cool football match. Like everybody communicating, everybody enjoying themselves, like at just a normal football match, like where people feel, felt very comfortable just to, once it was done, to walk off again, take their weapons again and continue killing each other again. So what, what I then thought at that point is how could we somehow distill what's the essence of what happens on the field and make that work off the field or connect the before, the during and the after in a different way. And that was then when Football for Peace was born. Wow. So before we get into that, what were you doing for those two years between when you walked away from your master's? How did you survive during that period? Yeah, doing jobs here and there. So I ended up continuing at the university, giving some classes. But yeah, now outside of of this scholarship environment and outside of the PhD environment, and my wife um, continued to work. So that that made us stay afloat. Okay. So can you talk to us about the the methodology? You said you witnessed this this incredible coming together of two rival gangs to play and to engage in a sporting experience. Mm-hmm. How did you start to sort of deconstruct the elements that created the methodology that 
allowed you to build something that would allow them to behave in a better way off the pitch through what you designed to be the on-pitch experience. Because it was, it is, when you read about it, it is quite a novel approach to to building a on-field solution. Yeah, and it, I mean, f- exactly. Uh, and during that time in Latin America, in Colombia and in Medellin, it was probably quite quite risky, like thinking back. But at the time, it didn't feel like that. Like, uh, obviously, I, it, that wasn't just me. But by the time then we had, we had built a small group that uh, that was like thinking about how could we go about this, and actually we in, once we had a sort of an idea, we involved the leaders of the gangs and and have them have a, an opinion like in terms of be taken into consideration, like um, because at the end of the day they were the ones who guaranteed that it would happen or that it would fail. So and they were very. Um, how would you call that very hostile at the beginning? And then like, I think it was like two things, curiosity on their side, like let's try something. And then the willingness to live in peace, like that violence wasn't like the choice in their life. So they, they also wanted this to end. So it was a bet on their side too at the end. So what we did is we just took football and, and football in, in Medellin happens normally on the street in any street. And so people would just like close off streets, um, pieces of streets and, and start to play football. That could be curves, that could be uphill, that could be flat, that could be any situation. So it's like five-a-side football or four-a-side football, three-a-side football in public space. So that, that was important that it would be public space and accessible for everybody. Although at that time, accessible meant for everybody who was living close because um, people couldn't socially mobilize like across the city without running real danger at the time of being killed um, on the way, which actually made some people not being able to go to work or to school because they had to cross a neighborhood they, they weren't allowed to cross. But taking this into account, then the the next next one was, okay, why? Like these the violence numbers was mainly on male youth. So like 98% like of offenders and, and victims were male. So it was mainly a male problem. At the same time, we didn't want to start a football project, but a societal project. So looking at both, it was like imperative to us to, to make women protagonists, at least as much as, as the boys in this project in order to really represent what we were trying to achieve. And then there was a third element in terms of the success. Success is obviously in football is symbolized by the goal. So how, how can we redefine that success? And, and that made us think about, okay, like the boys play football in order to score goals and to be seen as the heroes. So why don't we make them share that moment and, and actually allow them only to celebrate themselves when they help somebody else to be celebrated. So, and as to the previous point on the women or the girls, the rule we then established was that the first goal of each team needed to be scored by a girl. So that, that is sort of in the boys understanding, it's the weakest part of the team. And at the same time, to a certain degree, it was true because girls obviously weren't allowed to play that much and, and didn't have that experience, etc. So they, they had actually lack in skills. So the whole team needed to come together in order to make that work. And for a very selfish reason, initially, 
so that they could score also. So that, that was like the trick here. And, and then the next element was we thought, okay, the thing these people need to learn is to communicate and to, to solve problems. So what we, what we have to take away is this instance of a, of a referee who does that on their behalf. So there shouldn't be a referee. They need to train that. They need to train to solve conflicts, even if it's a very simple thing like goal, no goal, offside, non-offside, whatever, like football rules. So we need to, needed to give it in, in, in their hands so they would take um, responsibility over their actions. And instead, we then trained what we called at that time advisors who were like passive referees of the field who only who were trained to only intervene and then knew how to intervene in situation where it would escalate, where there was real danger of something bad to happen. Then there was somebody who would take care of that. So that was like the change in rules, like very much focused just the situation in Medellin. That wasn't like thinking about global nothing. It was just here's Medellin, here's a problem. This could be part of a solution. And then the like the framework in which we embedded this all was again two things. One was to really make the before and after part of the game. So before the game the two teams had to meet and to agree on rules. They had total liberty in changing the rules. Obviously, people would stick to, um, to the normal football rules, but then they could do anything what they wanted to, just they had to agree, which g- gave them whole ownership over the match, obviously. And then after the match, there was like the three points you could win, you can get by winning the match, two for a draw, one for losing, so there was nobody, no points. There was another three points you could get if you played according to the rules you established yourself. And it was like cross-reference. So one team needed to judge the other, the other team. And without these points, you wouldn't be able to win anything because it was half of the points. So that was like the, the framework in, w- in which it was developed. And then the other one, there, were, there needed to be always a host who would invite another team and take care of that team. So that means security, food, drinks, and and everything that would be necessary in order to have this match happen. And that actually was also an exercise of, of hospitality, if you want. And at the end of it, like after three, four, five years, like in compared and there's no hard figures here but we only had like three casualties like in in four or five years like in the context of what we organized there were more than 10,000 matches that happened during those times and what you could see and obviously the, you can't relate that back to this project because a lot of things were happening in parallel but but mortality went dramatically down and social mobility went up one thing i can refer to from the project perspective was that Uh, There's another thing um, I I forgot to mention. Everybody had the same jersey. Like all were like white jerseys with a logo. And they just, just one team put bibs on during the match so you could differentiate. But they went on on the field as the same team. And they went off the field as the same team. Only during, and it was like a pragmatical thing, a pragmatic thing to, um, to, to just differentiate the two teams during the game that one took bips on. I'm saying that because, I mean, there's obviously a reason to do that, but it translated into um, tickets for public grants. So people would 
recognize the investment of these young people into peace in the city by just transporting them for free, for example, if they had their jerseys on. I don't know how much um, people were 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 like sharing their jerseys for everybody who needed a trip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know, but that was interesting to just observe. It's brilliant. So around during this period of um, great transformation in the city, how were you funding this and, and was the team scaling? Yeah, there was very little funding, actually. I mean, little compared to what it could have, yeah, what it would have deserved, I think. But there was like, initially, the initial funding was coming from the municipality, actually. Like it was public funding. At the time, there was an office for conflict resolution, like as a department of, of, the, um, of, of the municipality. No, peace and conflict resolution, I think, was the department. And the city was very desperate to find creative solutions to go about the problem, which made them open up to, to this kind of proposition. And I, I think I must say, maybe if, if a Colombian would have proposed that, they wouldn't have done it. But as it was a German... It somehow comes with a quality seal and a level of curiosity. And if it's a German, he will make it work. So I, I think I had this advantage of just being a German um, without, without anything. And I think also this being a German and, and doing what I did was at the end of the day was, I think, my, my life insurance, I think, because people would recognize that. And I think I, if I hadn't had the protection of, of these gangs, something would have happened at some point. So there was, I think, an, an acknowledgement of, of the investment in, in the future of the city. I mean, part, part of the reason we do, we do this podcast is we explore, we're interested in serendipity and its connection to curiosity, people's willingness to confront their fears, embrace failure, uh, that tends to open up opportunity where otherwise it wouldn't. It seems that you did, I mean, this, what you did was highly risky. It certainly must have been moments where you were fearful, where you did consider that this might fail. Not, not really, not really. Uh, I think the real hero here is my is my wife um, because she was like scared, but she knew that there was no alternative for me than doing this, and she backed me up, knowing the danger I was running, and and I think I was. Very much myself. Like I, I just thought, okay, this needs to happen, so let's do it. And so I think it's on her, actually. Um, it's not me. Okay. <laughs> Talk to us then about your transition back to Germany to set up street football for tolerance. Oh yeah, there, there's another of those moments. Actually, there's I had established a relationship with with a representative of of the German government in, in Medellin. And he told me one day, hey, there's a, a delegation from Germany coming. The vice presidents of the parliament are, are coming, like of all parties. So I can show them all the, the usual stuff, but you're not official, but you're a German. So I'll show them your project. No, no, no. I invite you to talk about your project, he told me. So, so I said, hey, that's, yeah, I can do that. But then I thought, talking about this project, that, what impact will I have? They need to see it. They need to like expose themselves to it. So, so I asked him, hey, where exactly do you go after that meeting with them? Oh, we go and head to a restaurant. Like, uh, hmm. <laughs> and what I did then is, okay, there's only one road. Um, so I, I placed a football match just on the way. They couldn't drive by. They had to get off the cars. Oh, 
what a surprise. Look, there's one of the match. <laughs> <laughs> and then the result of it was that one of, of the vice presidents, actually the representative of the German Green Party, um, Antje Vollmer, she, she fell in love with, with it. And, and in Germany, we, they had, I was like far away at the time and didn't have any plans to go back to Germany at all. And, and, but then she said, hey, there is this tendency, right wing, we have now the right wing parties in so many parliaments and we run the danger of this becoming a bushfire in Germany. And, and I think the essence of what you do here could help there. And that was like the, the context in which then my wife and I, we were talking and, and our, our two daughters were turning like three and five. So education was on the horizon. And, and then, then we said, okay, let's do it. And so that, that was like the context in which we, we went to Germany. There was the project um, that was then projected to, to Brandenburg, like or was mandated on Brandenburg to do the pilot. It was financed by the German um, youth, family, women, and elderly um, ministry. So that was a safe, like financially a safe environment. So I knew that I that this project would work for at least two, three years. So did you trans- transpose the same the same model? In essence, yes. In a, it, but it was much harder in Germany than in Colombia. Um, which is very surprising. I thought, okay, there is like another level of code of conduct, which would make it easier to penetrate people. And, but it wasn't, um, at the end of the day, it was much easier in Colombia because there was so much passion involved. There was so much, I don't know what it was, but it was, it felt so much easier in, in, in Colombia. And having said that it did work in Germany too. And, and after two years, I handed over to local people because as, as a as a Westerner, like a Western German, and coming from Colombia, importing like a solution from Latin America to East Germany wasn't the way to actually make something succeed in Germany, uh, in East Germany. So I needed like rather sooner than later, I needed to hand it over to hand it over to to like colleagues who were from Brandenburg, and by then I had felt like curious about okay, it worked in Colombia, it now works in Germany, there must be other people who have come across a similar, a similar solution, like using football as a tool for transformation in their communities. And so I, I just did some research, found some initiatives, and it was true. There was people working, using football as a tool, similar to, to what we have done, had done in, in Colombia and, and in Germany. And, but they didn't know each other. They, they were just all, all the time reinventing wheels, making inefficient use of resources, etc., so I thought, okay, it might be an idea to actually build a platform where all these initiatives could meet and we could accelerate like impact and, and reach so many more. Share knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Share knowledge and, and develop much faster and, and get further, like collectively. So that was then the birth of Street Football World in 2002. I managed to translate like the, the trust the ministry had started to deposit in the organization in Brandenburg to translate that into a, like a seed investment in, in street football world. And, and luckily again, a world cup, like it's the third now I'm mentioning, right. <laughs> um, and the world cup in Germany was on the horizon and, and Germany was interested in building some sort of a, of a social legacy around it. And street football world became one of those things. Um, so we were then funding throughout until 2006, seven, and the ministry actually continued until 2010 to, to invest like a base funding, seed funding in, 
in street football world. And, and what we have done with street football world since then is actually to surface all these meaningful um, community-based initiatives that were that had this common denominator of of having identified football as a driver and a, and a success factor to achieve their missions, being in the health environment, in the education environment, or in in terms of social inclusion, in terms of homelessness, in terms of gender equality, whatever the topic relevant for the community was, football has, in these cases, had played the role of accelerating and increasing impact. So that network consolidated over the past now 18 years into what is now like quite a solid, robust, mature um, network of organizations. It's now 135-ish, I would say. And collectively, we're working with around about two, two and a half million youth on a daily basis, all in, in some sort of an underserved situation. And that's across probably close to 100 countries. It's quite incredible when you think about, I mean, I, I, when I sent you the questions, I referenced Glasgow Celtic and how clubs have legacies and many clubs have legacies in terms of their social impact and their role on improving opportunities for youth and communities around the world. So for me, I do have a question. Why do you think that the organisations like the, whether it's in the UK of the Football Association or international associations like FIFA and UEFA, didn't have the initiative to look at a social programme within their organisations to do community outreach, to create social impact, when they could clearly see the social power and impact that the game has on creating opportunity? For, for youth and for alleviating uh, social issues? Yeah, I think like really in, to make it very short, I think for m- at least most of them, if not all of them, it is looked at as CSR and not as DNA. So it's like this, this corporate social responsibility thing, one is sort of forced to do, or has been forced to do. So let's do something. And it's very much like, okay, it needs to position a brand, it needs to work for the organization, it, it, it needs to be tailored to the organization, it needs to be different to everybody else's initiatives. Like, and, and that is all filters to make it less impactful. And, then, and you end up like after all these filters with something that is much less impactful than it could be. Now add the collective element to it, and you get to a, another multiplying effect in terms of impact. And like this is just looking at, at it from that perspective. The other one is I think there is no institution in football that would have a vision for football. None. All of them have a vision for their organization. Most of them. But there's not one organization in football that would have a vision for football and that would built that vision based on the fact that football is owned by everybody, like as a social phenomenon. Everybody has an ownership of football. So people are not at the core of football. Business has become the core of football. So profit maximization is, is, is where everybody has to look to if you want to stay competitive, etc. And it's completely isolated from impact maximization. So that's two completely different things, which makes me say it's CSR and it's not DNA. And which actually was the reason to come up with Common Goal at the end of the day. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. 
Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time. Thank you.